Well, as always, we want to ask the Lord's blessings on our Bible study and opening God's Word. And we ask His blessings by singing a little chorus. We'd like for you to join with us. Father, I stretch my hand to Thee. No in Genesis chapter 41. I hope you have your Bibles open. We're going to consult several passages this morning. Uh, We have had a lot of studies on uh, the story of Joseph, and today we're going to begin to look at some lessons from God through Joseph uh, to us, to the people of God, to believers especially, and even to those who are not believers. Again, I want to ask you to be in prayer for Joshua Waltz, who normally leads our singing. We want to pray for those families that are uh, traveling. We have several families trying to get in a vacation before the summer ends. Uh, the, uh, the Foster family, the Hazelwood family, the Moran family, and maybe others that I can't think of, they're all traveling, or either they have reached their destination. Let's remember them. Let's remember to praise the Lord for his mercies to Ruby and Carl and to uh, Julie and Bob and to others of you. Let's remember to pray for Carolyn uh, Bats and uh, let's check on one another. These are days, uh, I don't think this coronavirus or variants of it is going anywhere. I think you might as well get used to it because I think it's going to be here for a while. Maybe, uh, maybe forever, but we have a security in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what about a Christian? We can't lose. If we stay here, we're going to praise him. And if we leave, we're going to go to be with him. So we can't lose. And I'm thankful for that. Genesis 41, at the end of two full years... Pharaoh dreamed, and he stood by the river, and there came up out of the river seven well-favored cows. And they were very fat, and they fed in a meadow. And behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river. They were ill-favored, and they were very thin. And they stood by the other cows upon the brink of the river. And the ill-favored and the lean-fleshed cows ate up the seven well-favored and fat cows, and Pharaoh woke up. He woke up in a sweat. He woke up wondering, what in the world is this? And he went back to sleep, verse 5, and he had a second dream, same night, same night. He slept and he dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of corn came up upon one stalk, rank and good. Seven thin ears and blasted came up by the east wind, sprung up after them. And the seven thin ears devoured, ate up the seven rank and full ears, the healthy ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was not one of them that could interpret it unto Pharaoh. And then the chief butler said to Pharaoh, I do remember my faults this day. Pharaoh was angry with me and with his servants, and I remember you put me in the ward, put me in prison, in the guard's house, both me and the chief baker, and we dreamed a dream, and one night, I and he, We dreamed each man according to the interpretation of his dream. There was with us there a young man, a Hebrew, 
a servant to the captain of the guard, and we told him our dreams, and he interpreted to us them, our dreams to each man according to his dream he did interpret. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted those dreams to us, so it was. Me, the Pharaoh, restored unto my office, and the baker he hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and he shaved himself, and he changed his raiment, and he came in unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've dreamed a dream. There's none that can interpret it. I have heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. And Joseph said, It is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word and let God's people say praise the Lord. And you may be seated Here's the way we divide this chapter. Now, I don't know how you are, but the whole time I was growing up and even growing up spiritually and even today when I hear other men teach, I always had me a pencil and paper. I took notes. And I still have some of those notes. I'd punch holes in them and put them in notebooks. Because you're not going to remember what I said to you. I say things all the time and people come up to me and say, my goodness, that was, that was wonderful. I'd never seen that before. And I said, well, I've only been saying it for 52 years. <laughs> but there comes a time when you hear it and there's a time when you don't hear it. It's like reading the scripture. The scripture is infinite. The scripture is bottomless. You can't reach the bottom of it. Uh, we've discovered now in the world of physics, this was what they're using to create these computers. Uh, the computer that you have in your hand, the phone, they used to take a half a city block to build a computer that would do that. Because they found out now that space is infinite. You can't reach the bottom of anything. You can go into a, a drop of water and you can never reach the bottom of it. Never get to the bottom. Space is infinite. And so God, who made space, is certainly infinite. Here's the way I divide chapter 41. First of all, in the first eight verses, you have the dreams of Pharaoh. Again, I don't know if you write in your Bible. I write in mine <laughs> and uh, underline and everything else. You have the dreams of Pharaoh in the first eight verses. Then you have the butler's revelation, verses 9 through 13. The butler that had been put in prison said, Oh yeah, I remember now when I was in prison and I had a dream and the guy that was with me, the baker, he had a dream. And uh, there was this young man that told us what those dreams meant. I remember that now. I think that he remembered very conveniently. I think he had forgotten them until now he sees an opportunity to make some brownie points with the Pharaoh. So now he suddenly says, oh yeah, I remember now. Then in verses 14 through 36, verses 14 through 36, you have Joseph's interpretation and recommendation. He not only interprets the dreams, but he presents to Pharaoh what he should do if these dreams are in fact going to produce reality, if these dreams mirror reality, if these dreams are a prophecy of what's going to happen, then you need to have a plan. And Joseph recommends a plan, verses 14 through 36. Then in verses 37 through 45, Joseph becomes Zathnath Paania. See if you can find that word. Can you find that? That's a name. <laughs> Zathnath Paania is the name that the Pharaoh gave him. He gave him that name because he was an interpreter of those dreams. Look at verse 37 in chapter 41. The thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? And if you go down, <clears throat> uh, down to verse 45... And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zathnath Paaniah. And he gave him a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. And Joseph went all over the land of Egypt. He gave him a special name. And I'll tell you about that name in another lesson. Verses 37 through 45. 
Then in verses, verse 45 and verse 50 and 52, we read about Joseph's family. Verse 45 and verses 50 through 52, Joseph's family. And then the theme in verses 53 through 57, verses 53 through 57, Joseph the Savior. Joseph the Savior. Now, as we begin this chapter, 13 years of slavery and imprisonment have abruptly ended. The 17-year-old boy who was sold by his brothers has, 13 years later, become the governor of Egypt at the age of 30. The young man who tended sheep is now going to tend to the nation of Egypt. In those 13 years, Joseph has learned many things. He's learned many things about himself. He's learned many things about men. He's learned many things about Egypt and the Egyptians. And he's learned many things about his God. And we should at least partially understand why he was allowed to endure so many things for so long so that the Lord would have him experience certain things and teach certain things. If you often wonder and say, I wonder why the Lord didn't do this for me earlier. Why didn't he do this for me when I was praying about it two years ago? Well, there's a reason and a purpose behind it, and I promise you this, it's always for your good. Always for your good and always for his glory. So we should partially understand why he was allowed to endure so many things for so long. You notice that chapter 41, at least in the King James Version, begins this way. It came to pass at the end of two full years. He's already been in prison for years. He's been in slavery for years. And now he's got to have two more years. Well, the young teenager who was so naive about his envious brothers at the age of 17 is now a young man of wisdom, wisdom beyond his years. The young man who had a dream that he could not interpret has been made an interpreter of dreams. Having interpreted the dreams of the baker and the butler, he's now going to interpret the dreams of the king of Egypt. And this means that now Joseph occupies three offices, three offices that our Lord Jesus Christ occupied. He, offers, he, he occupies the office of prophet. He's going to tell what's going to happen in the future. He, he occupies the office of governor. He's going to be the governor of Egypt and the office of savior. He's going to be the means of saving Egypt. Three offices that our Lord Jesus Christ holds. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the prophet that all the prophets spoke about. He's called the governor of the universe in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. And he, of course, is the only wise God and Savior. So, of course, as I have mentioned to you on many occasions, Joseph is a wonderful type or picture of the chief prophet, the governor, and the Savior of the universe. And I don't think we can say too much about our Lord Jesus Christ and how Joseph portrays him. So if you'll bear with me a moment, I'm just going to read off 26 to 27 ways, some of them you've heard and some of you haven't heard, how Joseph is a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's start there. Listen to this. Joseph was sent by his father to find his brethren, and the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to find his brethren, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and those people whom would save. Joseph was hated by his brothers without a cause. And according to John 15 and verse 25, the Lord Jesus Christ was hated without a cause. Joseph was sold by his brothers. So was the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph was sold for silver. So was the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph's brothers plotted to kill him, and so did the, brother, the brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph was put into a pit, which was meant to be the place of death for him. The Lord Jesus Christ was put into a pit. We call it the grave 
and it was to be the end of him. Joseph was raised up out of that pit, and the Lord Jesus Christ was raised up from the grave. Joseph obeyed his father in all things, and so did our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only man in history of whom God has said, this is my beloved son, my only begotten son, my uniquely created son, and in whom I am well pleased. Joseph was mocked by his brothers. Remember when they said, behold, this dreamer cometh. Called him a dreamer. And our Lord Jesus Christ was mocked by his brothers. The brothers of Joseph refused to receive him, and so did the brothers of the Lord Jesus. Joseph's coat was taken from him, and so was the coat of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, they gambled for his coat when he was crucified. No one in the world at large knew much of anything about Joseph during his growing up years, and the same is true of the growing up years of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read about his birth, and we read about when he was in the temple at the age of about 12. In time, though, everyone in that part of the world knew about Joseph, and most every nation on the face of the earth now has heard of Jesus of Nazareth. After Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, he was not heard from for many years. Since the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, of course we know he was resurrected, his family has not heard from him for over 2,000 years. Joseph was unsuccessfully tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the same is true of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was necessary for Joseph to go through all that he suffered in order to be the savior of his people, and the same is true of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph, being hated by his brothers, was turned over to the Gentiles, and in that state he could not defend himself when he was unjustly accused. Our Lord Jesus Christ was turned over to the Gentiles, turned over to the Romans, and he was unable to defend himself against his accusers. Pilate did not believe the accusation brought against the Lord, but he scourged him to put up a front before the Jews. And Potiphar did not believe his wife's accusations against Joseph, but he put him in prison to put up a front before his household and because of his wife. Joseph found favor in the sight of the Egyptian jailer, and the Roman centurion said of the Lord Jesus, truly this was the Son of God. Joseph's imprisonment was involved with dreams, the dreams he had and the dreams others had. The same is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate's wife said to him, have nothing to do with this just man. Pilate's wife said this to him about the Lord Jesus. Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Joseph was numbered with two transgressors, the butler and the baker. To the baker he was a blessing, but to the butler he was judgment. Our Lord was numbered with two transgressors, crucified between two thieves. To the one he was a blessing, and to the other he was judgment. There was only one person who could tell Pharaoh what his dreams mean. And there's only one person in all the universe who can tell us the mind of God. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ by his Spirit, whom we call the Holy Spirit. Joseph was exalted to the highest position of power, second only to Pharaoh. In terms of the nature of the Godhead, the persons of the Godhead are equal. I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. But in terms of position, Jesus said in John 14, 28, my Father is greater than I. We talk about the Father Son, and Holy Spirit. Joseph was 30 years old when he was made governor and presented to Egypt and sent out to save. Jesus was 30 years old when he was baptized, when he was acknowledged by his father, and he was sent out to save his people from the eternal famine coming on all the earth. During Joseph's time as governor, he was given a Gentile bride who bore him two children, Jesus has been given a Gentile bride and two children, one from the Gentiles and the other one from Israel. When men sought out uh, the Pharaoh for help, and we'll deal with this later in uh, Genesis 41, 55, the Pharaoh said, go to Joseph, and whatever he says to you, do it. Genesis 41, 55. 
And this is what the Father said on the Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, and John. This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. This is what Mary said at the wine, uh, of the wine at the marriage supper. Whatever he says unto you, do it. So you see, those are just 25, 26, 27 uh, likenesses between Joseph and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many more. There are many more. Now today, we're going to kind of take a warm-up lesson to get into the lessons that I want to teach you. I don't know if we'll get into those lessons today, but we'll set the stage for them. I'd like to ask you uh, to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, while I tell you this. As you might have already imagined, Joseph is a teaching tool. A teaching tool. How is he a teaching tool? He's a teaching tool to us in two ways. First, he is a wonderful type of the Messiah. And secondly, he is a great example of how a child of God should live. He is a wonderful type of the Messiah. He teaches us about our Lord. And he is a supreme example, a great example of how a child of God should live. All of the persons, the things, and the offices revealed in the Bible, everything revealed in the Bible is a teaching tool. And they teach us in three ways. Everything in the Bible is a teaching tool, teaches us in three ways. Number one, points us in the right way. Number two, warns us of the wrong way. And number three, reveals Christ and the gospel. Now, I'm going to give you an example here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you're there. Paul had been accused of many things, some by some of the young Christians, and he talked about the support of the ministry. Paul chose not to be supported. He was an itinerant, itinerant minister. He didn't pastor a church. He went from place to place preaching and teaching the gospel. And he would take up offerings from one church and take them to other churches that needed support and so on. He was a tent maker. Paul made tents mostly to support himself. So he's talking to the Corinthians about this, but notice how he explains this. Let's begin. I think it's in verse um, 6. Verse 6. Well, let's start with verse 5. Let's start with verse 5. Do we not have the power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles and as the brother. Now, what is he talking about here? He said, look, we can get married. Where did this whole idea today come from today that's especially prevalent in the Roman Catholic Church where priests are not supposed to marry? Where did that come from? From the, from the beginning, God gave Adam a wife. He said it's not good for him to be alone. There's nothing wrong with marriage. There's nothing filthy and dirty about the marriage union. Nothing. It is not only a, a psychological and emotional, uh, satisfies psychological and emotional needs, sexual needs, and other kinds of needs that God made us to be. So he says, look, we can get married. The apostles could marry. Peter was married, by the way. What is Peter supposed to have been? He's supposed to have been the first pope, Right? But if you read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus went to Peter's house and cured Peter's mother-in-law of a fever when she was sick. So Peter was married. He had a wife. We're going to have to find the first pope somewhere else. Can't find him in Peter. So he says, look, we have the power to, to marry. Then in verse, uh, he says, don't we have the power to lead about a wife as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas, who's Cephas? Cephas is Peter. Cephas is Peter. He said, Peter's married. Can't we get married? Of course we can. Or verse 6, or I only and Barnabas, do we have the power to forbear working? In other words, Barnabas and I, we can work and we can expect supplies from the churches, or we can work on our own. He, after all, he says, verse 7, who goes to warfare at any time at his own charges? Now, what would we do if we call men to come in the Marines and the Air Force and the Navy 
And we said, uh, while you're in there fighting for your country, you will have to support yourself. We're not going to give you a uniform. We're not going to give you guns. We're not going to supply foods. We're not going to give you beds or anything. You're going to have to supply for yourself. Well, that's crazy, isn't it? And so Paul is saying, if you expect men to spend their time studying the Word of God to feed you, then you have to support them. You have to take care of them to do that, to free them up from taking care of themselves. Who goes to war, verse 7, at any time at his own charges? Who plants a vineyard and he doesn't eat from the fruit? Who feeds a flock and he doesn't eat of the milk of the flock? Verse 8, do I say these things as a man or doesn't the law say this? Now watch it. Here's where I wanted to get to. It is written in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. So you read something like that and you say, what in the world, what does that mean? Well, of course, there's a practical lesson there. While the, while the ox is walking in a circle, pulling this, uh, this long pole that turns these two grinders together, where they stick the corn in between and grinds it up, the ox has to eat while he's doing that work. But Paul says he wasn't just concerned about the ox. He said that because he was concerned about anybody that works for him that has to be supported. Verse, uh, does God take care for the oxen? Last, last clause of verse 9, verse 10. Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that plows should plow in hope, and he that threshes in hope should be a partaker in hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing that we shall reap your carnal things? Now, what I'm trying to point out to you is that Paul says that the ox in verse 9 and these other things in the law are meant to teach us spiritual lessons, not just the practical lesson. In other words, everything in the Bible is a teaching tool. A teaching tool to point us in the right way, a teaching tool to warn us of the wrong way, and a teaching tool to reveal Christ and the gospel. In fact, everything in this universe witnessed to, to us. So why is everything a witness to us? Because number one, the Lord is absolutely fair. He will not damn anyone unfairly nor will he save anyone unfairly. Now let me open this up just a little bit for you. Fairness, my dear friends, means justice. When somebody says that's not fair, they are saying that is not just. To be fair is to be just. That's not fair means that's not just. Now in the Bible, justice and righteousness come from the same word, and they mean the same thing. Let me give you an example, and i quote it to you. You can go back and look at it later. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9 speaks of Noah, and it says, Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. That word sadiq, from the Hebrew, it's translated both just in one passage and righteous in another passage. So in Genesis 7, 1, the same word is translated righteous. Here it is. And I just read to you Genesis 6, 9, Noah was a just man. In Genesis 7, 1, the same word is translated this way. And the Lord said unto Noah, you come into the ark and all your house, for thee alone have I seen righteous before me in this generation. See, to be just and to be righteous is the same thing. When something is fair, that means it's just. That means it's righteous. And God is always fair. He's always fair. He doesn't damn people unfairly. And he doesn't save them unfairly. The same is true in the New Testament. You remember when we read about Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of our Lord, says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, 
That's the word dikaios. And that is a word, dikaios, I think it should be pronounced. And dikaios is translated there just, but it's also translated righteous. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, the Lord Jesus said, Go and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Same word that's translated just in Matthew 1, 19 is translated righteous in Matthew 9, 13. If you don't remember all these words, just remember this. God is righteous. God is just. God is fair. What does that mean to us? It means this. Everybody that's in heaven will be in heaven justly. And all who perish in their sins will perish in their sins justly. It is impossible for the God of Scripture to be unfair. It's impossible for him to be unjust, impossible for him to be unrighteous. He is altogether holy and he cannot Not that he will not, but he cannot do wrong. Now, what does this mean? It means, as I have already said, that he cannot forgive us of our sins unfairly. And he cannot cannot damn us for our sins unfairly. It's impossible. I want to say it a lot of times today. Impossible for God to be unfair, unjust, or unrighteous. So if I'm forgiven, justice must be done. If I'm damned, justice must be done. If the Lord loves me, justice must be done. If I die under his wrath, justice must be done. One thing this means is that everyone is witnessed to one way or another. Everybody in the world has a witness. Listen to this passage of Scripture. I started to have you turn, but we're going to look at some other passages in a moment. Here's what David wrote in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Let me translate that for you. How clearly the sky reveals God's glory, and how plainly it shows what he has done. Verse 2. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night shows knowledge. That is, each day announces to the following day, and each night repeats it to the next night, the glory of God, there is a God, and he is the God who has created all things. Verse 3, there is no speech, no language, where their voice is not heard. That is, although this is not a literal voice, this is not a literal sound, yet the message of God and his existence and his glory goes out to all the world and it is heard to the very ends of the earth every day and every night continuously. It reminds me of the blind man who walks outside and says, Son, I see no sun. But the sun is shining bright in his splendor. He can't see the sun because he's blind. And the Bible says it is a fool that said in his heart there's no God. It's quite evident that there's a God. My goodness, when we look at how complex our bodies are, what it takes for you to see something, what it takes for you to hear something, what it takes for me to speak, what it takes for you to think, to move, all of these things show tremendous design, and where there's a design, there must be a designer. Where something exists, there must be a God who made it. David said it this way, he that made the eye, can he not see? He that made the ear, does he not hear? You mean you've got a God that can make all of these wonderful things, but he himself is blind and deaf? No. So you need to read that psalm, Psalm 19, where he says, The heavens are a witness to all people in this world. Now I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Knowing what we're learning right now, that God is a just God, That God cannot damn unfairly. He cannot save unfairly. That he doesn't leave anyone without a witness of himself. 
the whole universe, the stars, the skies, the earth, the complexity of things, all witness and testify that God is and that he is our creator. There are many lessons that we can learn from uh, Genesis 41, and I'm going to share just one or two of them with you today and some more next week, God willing. But I want you to look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Now, literally, that is who hold down the truth. Some translations might have who hold back the truth. But literally, from the Corne Greek, is who hold down the truth. In other words, truth is there, but they hold it down. The world testifies, but they refuse to see. The world testifies, they refuse to hear. And here it says that they hold down the truth. They hold back the truth. It's like somebody having a book about a man who's a murderer and uh, his whole family history is in this book and he puts the book down and he stands on it and he won't let anybody open it because it's got the truth about who he is and about his family and about what he deserves. Now, this book tells us the truth about God and about ourselves. And it's not always pleasant. Let me tell you this. The only hope I have is in Jesus Christ. And if I perish, I'm going to perish calling on the Lord Jesus Christ. Who else can you call on? The church? You're going to call on the pastor? You're going to call on the preacher? What are you you going to call on? You're going to call on him. So if I perish, I'm going to perish calling on the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the only one that can save me. All right? So he says here, he says here that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. We don't like to hear a lot about the wrath of God today because we just want to hear about the love of God. 99 and 44, 100% pure love. Ronnie Millsap had that song, by the way. 99 and 41, 44, 100% pure love. Where God is not only love, he's also wrath. Now, verse 19. Why is this wrath revealed against men? Well, first, because they hold down the truth. God has given them a witness, but they hold it down, verse 19. Because that which may be known of God, that is, that which God has shown to us, which God has taught us, is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Now, I believe in the depravity of man. I believe that when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, when he sinned against God, he died spiritually. He was created how? He was created body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. What does that mean? That means he was a triunity. A triunity. Three parts to us. Body, soul, spirit. But the Lord said, in the day that you eat of this tree, don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat, you will surely die. Well, we know that when Adam ate of that tree, he lived for eight or nine hundred years. You happen to remember, Brother Turner, how long he lived? I don't remember. It's eight or nine hundred years. He had a long life. And uh, uh, so it, it can't mean that he died physically, but what it does mean The moment he disobeyed God, he died spiritually. What does that mean? It means the spirit died. Now he's a body and he's a soul. What is a bicycle? Well, bi means two. That's some type of uh, moving vehicle that has two wheels on it. A tricycle has three wheels on it. Right? So now Adam is a die. He's die. He's two. He's a soul and a body. His spirit is dead. He died spiritually. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, You has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. 
Now, the word death, if you go back and look at the etymological root of the word death, go back and study it a little bit, uh, you'll find out that it means to separate. It means to separate. So when you walk up to a casket and you see a body in that casket, you know that somebody is not at home. You can tell that somebody's gone. What's happened? The person who lived in that body is gone, separated from that body. And when that person is separated from that body, that body is dead. You got me? So death means to separate. So when Adam sinned against God, he was separated from God, and he died spiritually. And listen, this this means this. It means he lost the capacity, he lost the ability to understand spiritual things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural man, the pseudokos man, the man that's like he is, after the fall, as he comes forth from the womb of his mother, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolish unto him. Neither can he know them. They must be spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Why can't he discern them? Why can't he understand them? Because he's dead in trespasses and sins. He comes into this world dead. Adam was alive to God. He looked forward to the visits of the Lord in the cool of the day, in the garden. God was his father. He had a wife named Eve. There was a perfect environment. So we've got to have more than a perfect environment to save us. Our government and the governments of the world are trying to tell us that we need to deal with uh, climate change and we need to deal with all these other things. We need to create a perfect environment. When you create a perfect environment, you still have an imperfect human being. All right, so he says here that that which is revealed is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. When God made man, he stamped him with the impress of his own personality. And therefore, men have a witness in themselves that there is a God, but what do they do with it? We just read it in verse 18. They hold it down. They hold down the truth about themselves and about the God who created them. For, verse 20, for the invisible things of him. Now, what's an invisible thing? Well, that's something you can't see. The invisible things of him, of God, from the creation of the world are seen. When we look at a created world, we know there must be a creator. We look at complexity, there must be an intelligent being who made this. We look at design, there must be a designer. We look at being, there must be someone who created this being. They're clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Verse 20, every man is without excuse because he has a witness in himself And he has a witness from the created world. Okay? So when they knew God, verse 21, they did not glorify him as God. They were not thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And in their their degraded, depraved state, They thought the the more depraved people get, it's crazy, but the more depraved they get, the wiser they think they are. That's what it says in verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. You find a a guy, and I'm not not, uh, deprecating anyone. I'm not putting anybody down. I'm just using street language. You know, the New Testament was written in the Greek street language, K-O-I-N-E, the Koine Greek, the common Greek spoken in the street. You can find a man in Lower Broad in Nashville who says he's homeless, but somehow finds enough means to get him a, I don't know what cigarettes cost today, seven or eight (laughs) dollars. When I was growing up, you get a pack of cigarettes, 15 cents. Now they're about seven or eight dollars. 
And uh, he'd get them a jug of wine. And down in Georgia, where I was from, they had, they had this uh, wine. Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now. And they had a little rhyme about it. Uh, what's the price? 30 twice. 60 cents for a quart of wine. You get to, somehow or another, the guy that's under the bridge down there who says he's homeless, he can get him some wine and some cigarettes. Right? But you go down there and start talking to him about the problems in the world, I guarantee you he can give you answers that seven wise men can't give you. I guarantee you he can. He's got the answers to everything, but he doesn't have any answers to his own dilemma. Are you following me? So professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And what do they do now? Verse 20, 23. If you have changed, you put EX in front of it because that's what it is. Is They exchanged, they exchanged the glory of the uncorruptible God for the image of a corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. In other words, when you look back in history and you see all of these idols that these civilizations made, some of them half bird and half men, that's, where they, that's what he's talking about. They made all of these things and they said, these are our gods. Even Israel did that. When they got out of Egypt, they made a golden calf. These be thy gods, O Israel. And if you go and read all of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, I'm reading through Ezekiel now, you'll see that God says, you set up these idols. I told you not to set them up. You wouldn't get rid of these people, and they taught your boys and girls how to worship those idols, and now I'm going to have to bring judgment on all of you. So what they did, they exchanged. You see, the God of the Bible is an invisible God. He's not a God that can be replicated, duplicated, or imagined in a statue. That's why he forbids us to take statues and images of anything or any likeness of him, especially of him. The law forbade that because they knew that the depraved hearts of men would eventually worship these things. So they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image, verse 23. And they say, they're still saying today, oh, we're worshiping God. We just need these statues. We need the statue of Peter and Paul and the apostles, and we need the statue of Mary. I've seen statues of Mary uh, where people go there because Mary has this water fountain that comes out of her eyes, and they said that, that blood flowed out of her eyes. Well, even if blood did flow out of her eyes, that would be a deception from hell. It wouldn't have any importance to it. The God of the Bible can only be known as he has revealed himself. Jesus said, no man knows the Father but the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So the way to know God is to get to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me, right? Okay. All right, now. Wherefore, verse 24. God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed or exchanged the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I should have brought it today, but I decided I'd share with you next week some things that will shock you about what's going on in our own community here. I'll share that with you next week. So you don't want to miss that. And he says here, that what if you die? Well, you're just going to be with the Lord. <laughs> and I will too. If I'm gone, you just say, well, I never did find out what that was. I'll be sure and point it out to my wife and she can tell you. <laughs> All right, now look, friends, it says here, that because men refused God, then they began to exchange things for God and put things in the place of God. Even though they have a witness within themselves and they have a witness from the creation. 
So God gives them up, verse 24. They began to dishonor their own bodies. They changed the truth of God into a lie. They worship and serve the creature more than the creator. That's what we're doing today. We are worshiping on ourselves. And you remember this. You may not understand this right now, but you remember this. Any rejection of God as he has revealed himself in the scripture is in fact a worship of ourselves. Any rejection of God as he has revealed himself in the scripture is in fact a worship of ourselves. We are trying to fashion a God after our image when the scripture says he created us in his image. And what we want is a God that we can fashion. And we can tell him when to sit down and shut up. We can tell him when to move. We can tell him, I won't have you telling me this, and you won't do this, and you won't do that. I'll do it, and you can't do anything unless I let you. That's the what we want. That's the kind of God we want. So God gives them up in verse 24. Now in verse 26, God gave them up. Secondly, now, you see the progression? He gave them up to vile affections. How many of you have, instead of affections, you have passions in your Bible? Anybody have passions? Okay. A couple of you, several of you have passions. An affection here is what you should justly and fairly and in a godly way love. Uh, a woman, a, a, a dog that has puppies will take care of those puppies. We have birds that make nests at our home, and that mother will go out during the day and in the springtime, and she'd get food, and she'd bring it back to those little birds. You know, years ago, I think I may have told you this years ago, but years ago on a gutter outside of our house, a bird made a, began making a nest up on top of the gutter. It was a long downspout, you know, and it was right up where it curved, made it up there. And... uh Jet probably doesn't remember this. He was a little boy, but I went out and knocked it down. <clears throat> and of course, they were appalled. Why are you doing? What are you doing knocking down a little bird's nest? And the reason I knocked it down is twofold. One, there were dogs and cats around that would get those birds. Secondly, that was a very bad spot for a nest. We'd seen them before, and the nest would fall off, and the little birds would be killed. So I was doing the mother a favor by destroying the nest, but she didn't know that at the time. And sometimes when God destroys our nest, he's doing us a favor. He comes in, he destroys something, something you'd hoped for, something you've been working for, something you're looking for, and you got to have it, and he destroys it, and he tears it up. Well, believe me, he's doing it for our good. Our good. But it says here that when we reject what light he gives us, then we grow harder. Remember, I've told you many times, the same sun outside that, whack, that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun hardens the clay, melts the wax. The same gospel either hardens us or softens us. It's a savor of life unto life or death unto death depending upon our reception of it. If we listen, we bow to it, we say, this is the truth, Lord, thank you for showing me this, it will begin to melt you. It will begin to conform you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once we are predestined to be conformed unto the image of Christ, Ephesians chapter 2. You can read that in your own Bible. So it says here that God gave them up. Here's the second stage of hardness. God gave them up to vile affections. What does that mean? It means they start loving and having passion for things that were forbidden. A vile affection is having a passion for, an affection for, a desire for, a love for what God has forbidden. Now let's go on. For even the women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of the error, <coughs> which was meat. Translation. When you do things like that, you get the reward for it, 
And the reward is you're made harder. The reward is you're put in a worse state before God. The reward is you begin to develop an addiction for those things. When people take a drug that's illegal or something that makes them high, makes them feel good, not only do they have to have it again, but they have to have more of it. You have to increase it to get you back to the level. And so here, when you have vile affections, when you love things that God said you are not to love, when you don't love things that you should love, when you don't love Him, you don't cry to Him, you don't say, Lord, show me yourself, open my eyes and I might behold wondrous things out of your word. When you don't do that, you reject the truth of the gospel, then it creates in you a hardness. And these vile affections led to lesbianism and homosexuality. That's very clear in Romans chapter 1. Very clear. And even as though, verse 28, we're not through yet. Notice verse 24, he gave them up. Notice in verse 26, he gave them up. And notice here in verse 28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge and God gave them over. Gave them up, gave them up, gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Translation, a reprobate mind is a mind that will enable a person to go to a lot of trouble, something that's not convenient, in order to have what they know God has forbidden for them to have. Is that clear? I hope that's clear to you. A reprobate mind comes from a, a Greek term, I think it's pronounced a dokumos. And it means a mind that is not approved by God. It means a warped mind. It means a mind that is no longer thinking properly, no longer thinking right, no longer thinking God's thoughts after him, but saying, I won't have anything to do with God, and I'll be my own God. And isn't that what the devil said to Adam and Eve? He said to Eve in the Garden of Eden, Has God said, You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You mean to tell me? that a good and gracious God would forbid you from eating from something? You mean, oh, she said, well, we can, we can eat all of the trees of, of the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God has said, you shall not touch it, neither shall you eat it, lest you die. And God didn't say a thing about touching it. That means she's thinking about touching it. You know, I'll just touch it a little bit and smell it and get it around my mouth and all of that, but I want to... And then the devil said this. He said, you shall not surely die. You mean to tell me a God of love would kill you because you took a bite of a fruit? No, he said, God's got something up his sleeve. He's trying to keep something from you. God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God. Literally, you will determine for yourself what is good and what is evil. And ever since man fell in the Garden of Eden, he wants to be like God. All of the tyrants in history from Hitler to Stalin, Mussolini, all these tyrants in history from the, the great uh, Greco-Roman Empire. All of these men want to be like God. The only problem is, every time people can do anything they want to do with anybody at any time, you know what happens? They always kill themselves with it. That's why Elvis Presley died at the age of 42. Elvis Presley would rent out an entire theater Go in and take his daughter, Lisa Marie, and they'd watch the movie. Wouldn't be anybody in there but the two of them. He could do anything he wanted to do, anywhere he wanted to do, and he ended up killing himself with it. I'll tell you, my friends, listen to the Lord. Let me hurry. It says, being filled, verse 29. So he gave them up in verse 24, he gave them up in verse 26, he gave them over in verse 28 to a reprobate mind, and so now they're filled with unrighteousness, fornication, 
wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, it's talking about, you know, talking about people behind their back, hurting them behind their back, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Yes, sir, God doesn't like it when children disobey their parents. Without understanding, covenant breakers, can't, can't uh, when I was growing up, a man would, could sell a whole farm on the shake of a hand. They draw up a deed, but they can shake hands on it. Can't do that today. Without natural affection. See, that harkens back to that vile affection in verse 26. Without natural affection. What a natural affection is, is loving thing that you should naturally love. So now we have 60 million abortions. I'll tell you, the sparrows and the dogs and the cats and the ducks will rise up in judgment on judgment day against human beings who were created in the image of God because they'll take care of their young and we're doing all we can to get rid of ours. Notice, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they once commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now, my dear friends, Joseph is a man, a young man, who is looking to the Lord. He is waiting on the Lord. And that's the way he was able to get through everything that he was getting through. His brothers hating him, envious of him, sold him, were going to kill him. Had it not been for the intervention of one of his brothers, he would have been killed. Sold the Ishmaelites, took him into Egypt, sold him again to Potiphar. Potiphar's wife made the play for him. A lie, he's put in prison. And now as our chapter begins, he's in prison for two full years before God begins to move on his behalf. How did he get through it? How, did, how was he able to stomach all of that? How was he able not to become bitter and uh, vengeful? How is it? It is because he listened, he looked for, and he longed for a word from his God. That's how. And the way we are going to get through these troublesome times, as the song says, troublesome times are here, filling men's hearts with fear. Freedoms we all hold dear now are at stake. What are we going to do? We're not going to be able to do anything about it unless God raises up somebody, unless he sends down his spirit and begins to convert people. Think about it. If a half of the United States were converted this afternoon, the whole nation would be changed. I believe the only hope for the United States of America are the people of God. I believe that. I believe the only hope for America is the people of God. If the people of God will serve him, will be faithful to him, will look to him, will call on him, I believe he might be pleased to intervene. The faithful, fervent, righteous prayer of a righteous man availeth much, says James. All right, may the Lord add his blessings to the teaching of his word, let's stand together. And God willing, will to continue there next week. And I have five lessons for you that I want to teach you from Genesis 41. Five lessons that we get from Joseph. May the Lord add his blessings to the teaching of his word. We're going to sing our little song, Under the Blood of Jesus. Safe in the shepherd's fold, under the blood of Jesus, safe while the ages roll. Safe though the worlds may crumble, safe though the stars grow dim, under the blood of Jesus, I'm secure in Him. Under the blood of Jesus, safe in the shepherd's fold. 
under the blood of Jesus. Under the blood. Safe while the ages roll. Safe while the ages. Safe though the worlds may crumble. Safe though the world may crumble. Safe though the stars grow dim. Safe though the stars grow dim. Under the blood of Jesus. Under the blood, I am secure in Him. I am secure in Him. Father, I ask your blessings upon those who've heard the Word of God today, and your blessings upon those who have not. I pray that you'll unstop the deaf ears of lost men and women who are dead in trespasses and sins, and, O Lord, have mercy upon them. Cross their paths and open their eyes and unstop their ears and remove the veil from their hearts that they might hear thy word, they might believe thy word, and they might be saved. Father, we pray for the United States of America. We are a doomed and lost nation unless you intervene. Unless you come and call us, Lord, we're going to continue to run after all of these gods that we're running after today. And then it'll be like it was in the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah. And when the judgment comes, they won't have a clue. Oh, Lord, we ask you to have mercy upon us. We ask you to give us ears to hear. We give, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that understand. Cause us to have a longing and a desire, a burning desire to know you. Know your will and to do it. You helping us by your grace. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent into the world, became the Savior of sinners. We confess that we are sinners. You've taught us that. And we know that he came to save sinners, and therefore we have believed on him that we might be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ask your blessings now as we part. Keep us safe through another week. Use us for your honor and for your glory. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen.